And I looked into this guy's eyes and I thought, oh my God, I'm looking at pure evil. I mean, it was like looking into a black hole when I looked into his eyes. There was nothing. There was no emotion. There was nothing with it. Is he would stalk his victims from a location. And many times it was from a bar or for something else where there's a lot of people where he could mix in. The, uh, the victim would leave. He followed her from a bar and she was pulling off an exit, which was to her home. And he tapped her, her car in the rear. And uh, when he did that, she pulls over to the side of the road thinking it's an accident. And when she gets out... True crime on Red Alert. Right along with host Bianca Crespo and former FBI agents Ray Carr and James R. Fitzgerald for an intimate perspective on gripping high-profile cases. This is Cold Red. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Cold Red. This is James R. Fitzgerald, Fitz for short. Uh, retired FBI profiler, forensic linguist, uh, Unibomb case, author, uh, professor, all that kind of stuff. And I'm here with my very good friend, Ray Carr. Ray, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. And uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, my name's Ray Carr. I'm also a retired FBI agent. And uh, I was thinking, Jim, about us starting off. And I thought, what would people like to know about us that they probably don't have much of an idea about? And I thought, what about our very first experience with the FBI Academy? So I thought, you know, I think our experiences were kind of different. And so I'm going to ask you a question and then you can kind of ask me a question as it kind of results to it. But you're and, and a lot of people don't know this about you, Jim, but uh, you took a different path than many people take going into the Academy because you were first a law enforcement officer, and then you were down in the academy, in the National Academy, the FBI National Academy, which is for command staff. And then a month later, after you get back, you wind up going back down again, but this time as a new agent. I mean, talk about, you know, being in the dryer or being in the washer. I mean, <laughs> you had to have, you had to be going through all kinds of different feelings with yourself. And run through the ringer too, right? Let's keep the uh, laundry uh, theme going here. Uh, yeah, you're you're a little bit off there, but close enough in time frame. But yeah, I was a police officer in Ben Salem Township, and my second book, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, book two, is all about those years, up and down with the politics and whatever. But uh, at some point, they nominated me to go to the National Academy, which is a very exclusive school for law enforcement personnel. And I think less than one-tenth of one percent of all U.S. law enforcement uh, officers get to go to this very elite school. So I was a sergeant, Ben Salem PD. Things uh, worked out right politically at, at some point after it was really bad for a while. And um, and they sent me there. And I did my, uh, I believe it was 11 weeks at the time, in the 147th session. That was September of 86 through early December of 86, 11 weeks. And while I was down there, um, I, I had taken the FBI test like four years before. There was a hiring freeze in the mid 80s. While I'm down there, I get a letter. Uh, my then wife calls me or I call her, whatever, back then. And uh, hey, uh, you have a letter from the FBI, open it up. And you have an interview coming up, Jim. Uh, so I had a call and say, yeah, I'll be there for the interview. I did the interview a few months after I got out of the NA. And uh, within uh, literally one year later, uh, in November of 87, I started at the FBI Academy. And what was so weird about my time there, I write all, starting with day one of the FBI Academy as an agent, that's in my book three. That's the first uh, page of A Journey to the Center of the Mind, book three. But what I mentioned in there, uh, in both book two and book three, is I was the youngest guy in my National Academy class. I was, um, uh, they, my nickname was Kid. And I was uh, 34 and uh, I guess about nine and a half, 10 years in then. And, um, and uh, everybody just referred to me as the kid in, in, a, in a friendly, you know, respectful sort of way. One year later, I'm back in the academy as a new agent trainee. And guess what? I'm the oldest guy in my class at 34. And guess what my nickname became then? Pops. So 
again, respectfully and honorably in, in so many ways, I was the guy a lot of people turned to, you know, for law enforcement issues and the tactical stuff, how to get this done, that done. So, yeah, that was an interesting way for me that um, in, in me entering the FBI, that I was uh, there 11 weeks before all of my classmates. And I found out years later that almost hurt me into getting into the FBI. Because the FBI doesn't want to have a reputation of when the occasional younger law enforcement officer goes through the National Academy, and usually they're over 37, which is the maximum age to be hired, Ray, as you, as you well know. But um, they don't want to get the reputation that they're stealing these up-and-coming, you know, cops that maybe have, you know, some things on the ball, whatever, and they do really well at the NAO, then we want you to join the FBI. So I was told years later, yeah, they went back and forth and almost flipped like a, a, a mental coin, whether they'd be sending the wrong message or wrong image. And uh, luckily, however that coin landed, it wound up me, uh, you know, uh, getting into the FBI and, and uh, with 20 years after that. And I'll end it with this. In the history of the FBI, there have only been about a dozen, give or take, um, NA uh, attendees, National Academy attendees, who later became FBI agents. I think about half of them were during World War II, when a lot of the agents were being sent overseas or doing other kind of sort of espionage work against Nazi Germany. And then they recruited some of these NA guys to become special agents. So yeah, that's my story. It's a long and winding road, as they say, but um, but it all came together in the long run. And, um, and it worked out for me going from kid to pops in one year kind of a truncated uh, version of life, but it, uh, it, it, again, it worked out for me. Well, if you'll remember, uh, when you and I first went into the academy, the maximum age was not 37, it was 35. You're and right. later on, it was increased to 37 uh, because it was mandatory to, to retire at 55. And then that was, again, increased to 37. Yeah. And and that's a good point because I had a eleven years and like four months on with my PD. I was thirty four. You're and you're right. Back then the cutoff was thirty five, and I could have vested my pension if I went to an even twelve years at the Ben Salem PD. And I kind of uh, called up the people. I have a hypothetical question uh, at the FBI. It was Jerry Williams? You you know her. She has her own podcast. She was I think both. Both of our recruiting agents, right, are definitely mine. Good person to this day, good person with a great podcast. Well, to get her on here one of these days, because we've, we've both been on her program. But I remember calling her, well, is there a chance I could hold out? Or I have a friend who may want to hold out a little longer. I wasn't really lying to her, because I was my own friend, of course. And she kind of she kind of said, well, it's pretty tricky. There's no guarantees. and But I did find out later that they would allow people with certain um, – exemptions for different types of reasons to come in after 35 and i probably could have vested my pension but i got a big lump sum i put it on a investment property down down the shore as they say in philly and that all worked out for me yeah i i had a kind of a little bit of a different take with mine well let me ask you ray tell us about your first day at the academy and what built up to you getting there a lot of people don't know this but the first time i took the written exam i didn't pass me too same with you. I don't know if it, I didn't, not that I didn't pass, but I didn't score high enough. Right. And I was very young at that time. I think I was 24. Uh, I just finished my first master's degree. I had just been married a couple of years. And then I waited. And then again, in 88, I took the exam again and passed it. And I remember when I was a, I was a human resource, director of human resources at a juvenile correctional facility called Glen Mills which is out in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. And I'd been there about eight years, since 1979. And I remember applying and I remember getting in and I remember leaving, quitting a job, the only job I ever had and going down to the academy and thinking, what happens if I don't make it? I mean, what what the heck is, am I gonna do? Because it was so stringent when you got down there, you couldn't get lower than an 85 in any, in any test. You had a the physical fit part of it. I didn't think I'd have a problem with that. But then there was defensive tactics, there was firearms, and I thought I was pretty good at that. But I was worried, and I was a smart guy. I had, I had two master's degrees. When I finally went down, and I thought, geez, I said, I, I shouldn't have a problem with this. But you always have that in the back of your mind. 
what happens if I flunk a test? And we had a student in our class that was recycled. And what I mean by that is they sent them back to the field division to give them some more seasoning. And then they had to come back through and go through the whole academy again. Now, my academy was only 14 weeks, much like yours, Jim, where today I believe the academy is like 24 weeks. I think it's a lot longer. But it was, uh, I always said down at the FBI academy, I felt like a gerbil in a gerbil cage because everything was connected. Very rarely did you go outside unless it was for um, PT, physical training, or firearms. Other than that, you stayed inside. So because I drove from from uh, the Philadelphia area down there, uh, just to get out and, and go in the car and take a ride every night was was something was like a, was like going to recess. It just it, it was an escape rather than just staying in the place the whole time. But it was really interesting. It was a unbelievable. Uh, I still talk to some of the guys that uh, I was in class with. Uh, we have a little group email about eight or nine of us. And uh, it's uh, quite a group. Uh, and it was uh, quite an experience. It's interesting joining the FBI. There's three factors that are big question marks. The, the first day you walk in the door, you brought up one of them. A, are you even going to graduate? W will you have what it takes? Because you, you're, first of all, you competed against 100,000 people in, in that given year and taking these tests, which they give maybe every few weeks. I'm not sure exactly how they do it now. And then all those people get ruled out. And then, you know, you slowly come to the top and then now you're at the academy in your class of about 40 people. And these are the best of the best. And you got to make sure that, you know, you're going to get through, too. So first, will you, in fact, graduate? Second, where are you going to go? We're going to spend the next five to 10 years of your life uh, because it's it's really a, a, a you, your hat is uh, your, your name is tossed in a hat. And you may request a few different FBI divisions, but you're never going to get the one that you process through unless it happens to be New York, LA, or San Francisco uh, nowadays. And um, and the third thing is, Ray, you don't know what kind of work you're going to do. What's great about the FBI, there's so many different violations that we work that, you know, you could be working Chinese uh, counterintelligence, Russian, you could be working bank robbers, you could be working, you know, cyber crimes or, or child, you know, human trafficking. It could be anything like that. And, and and dozens and dozens of other violations. So you really enter this job, uh, this, this, this job, this profession with a lot of question marks and no guarantees until maybe around the 24th week, at least you know where you're going, at least you've graduated, then you'll find out in the division and usually not till about six months later, what kind of squad you're going to. Real quick, I remember when we, we had a, a thing at seven o'clock at night where they brought all the agents in, all the all, all the recruits, and we're sitting in, in the classroom, and it was a ceremony where you had an envelope sitting at your desk, and you had to come up, and you had to open the envelope in front of everybody and read the office you were going to. And we were always told that the person down in personnel would be blindfolded, and they would take a dart with your name on it and throw it at a map of the United States. And wherever it landed, that's where you went, right? And I thought, man, great. So I'm thinking... Well, my background, I got that a little bit of accounting background. I got the MBA. It was a savings and loan crisis with the banks all collapsing. I thought down in the Southwest, Texas, New Mexico, I thought I'm going there. A couple people before me that were accountants, that's where they went. So I told my wife, I said, you know, are you okay with going to Texas or going to New Mexico or somewhere on the West Coast? And she says, I'll go wherever you go. I said, great. That's a good wife. Hey, 41 years later, we're still together. But Funny thing is, <clears throat> I opened the envelope and I was shocked. It said Buffalo. And I said, I'm sitting up in the sit up in the front of the class in front of everybody, and I says, Where the hell is Buffalo? I had no idea where Buffalo was in the United States because I was so fixated on another part of the country. And I'm thinking, Buffalo, where's Buffalo? And then I look on the map and there it is in western New York, up towards the Canadian border, and I thought, Buffalo. What did I do to deserve that? It's almost like going to Butte, Montana. But what a great experience in Buffalo. It really was. Something else. Right when I was coming in in 87, they had just opened the door for if you, because New York was so tough to staff. People did not want to go to New York City. High cost of living, tough to get around, long commutes, the best work in the Bureau, and I'll stand by that. But it was a very tough place to work. 
If you wanted to uh, go there, however, you could raise your hand and the Bureau was so desperate to get people because they were transferring people there and they were quitting. These farm boys, I'm not saying that you know, in a denigrating sense, but people from the Midwest and small towns, they don't want to live in New York or, or some little bungalow in, in central New Jersey and have a two hour commute. So they wanted people who were willing to make, uh, who would go to New York. And unlike your wife, my wife didn't want to go to an Indian reservation or some small town because I was told as a cop, 11 years as a cop, they would have put me in some small resident agency, which is like a satellite office out of a bigger division. And I would have been in the Southwest or something on, on a reservation. And, and that's fine. It's important work. It has to be done. But there's no way <laughs> my then bride would have uh, come to there. And uh, so New York it was. I was living in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So I made a two-hour commute north every morning and back south every afternoon. There were a bunch of other agents. Uh, they were actually, when agents would first transfer into New York to keep them from quitting, they would give out real estate brochures to the new agents or the transferred in agents after a few years. Say, oh, go to Bucks County, great schools, low cost of living. But I was already living there. I just jumped in an existing carpool then eventually got my own bureau car. And, and for seven years, back and forth every day, two hours up, two hours back. And that's before cell phones, that's before Sirius in your car. I don't think too many Buick cars have Sirius in it, but um, but uh, there was no other way. You're just driving with a hopefully a working AM/FM radio and at least get some entertainment that way. Yeah, they call it the good time box, right? The, good, the old good time box. But Jim, with New York, you know, you had the bureau, and then you had New York. It was totally different than any other office in the United States, any other office in the world, everything came through New York. You're right. The work there was phenomenal. And it's, and the, the stories that come out of there are also phenomenal. But what a place to start out. Uh, you know, you're thinking, I remember having to go and, and you talk about stalking, which we're going to talk about tonight. And I remember uh, going to Attica Prison. And I'm thinking, I'm going to Attica, the, the place where there was a there was a riot in the 70s. And here I am in the 80s going to Attica, which is not, you know, not that far removed and thinking, I hope they don't have another riot. And I happen to get caught up in it, you know. But, yeah, it's uh, it's New York was really, really something, uh, at least the city of itself. And I loved it going up there. Loved it. And I'll segue right into our sort of topic we want to get into stalking. And um, I was on a bank robbery squad, which also covered extortions, which loosely covered threats and other type of threatening type communications to people. And I wound up making a contact with the director of security at NBC at 30 Rock. He was a retired NYPD, I think, detective, lieutenant, good guy. And, um, and I was the one he called whenever any of their talent, that's what they called their people, uh, you know, the on-air people, whenever they had any problems. So I interviewed uh, a number of folks. Uh, I put this in my in my third book, but a number of the folks at NBC. And uh, I had some good contacts there, too. Whenever I wanted tickets to Saturday Night Live or I guess it was David Letterman, I think, was his show. On, uh, and I think uh, Conan O'Brien later, I always had just call up and I have at least two tickets uh, waiting for me. So uh, but I did some good work, too, uh, in that regard. The tickets were free. They weren't giving me anything. I would just get a little bit ahead of the line. So uh, uh, free to everybody, I mean. So, uh, But, yeah, a few different people up there. Um, and um, it was it, it was an interesting time learning how to walk. I remember Rush Limbaugh had a stalker. I went. I never actually met him, but I met his producer, Kit Carson, at the time, just like the cowboy. Uh, and um, it was interesting talking to him and a few other, like I said, NBC characters and who's the woman um i hate doing this to our audience but she's like supposed to have the highest iq in the world and she was married to a famous heart surgeon uh this is awful we'll put it in the comments or something but my partner and i rich finale went to interview her because she was being stalked by some guy and she was truly very intelligent but very nice down-to-earth woman at her upper west side uh, apartment and um a uh uh, and her husband was really a cool guy, and they welcomed us in, and we, you know, got the information they needed. And uh, Madeline Vos Savant, it's it's a name Vos Savant, which Savant actually means smart person. So, um, uh, 
but she had a she had a column and she was on TV a lot. But she, I think, she is in the record books, certainly back in the '80s, of having the highest highest registered IQ ever. So again, she was one of my stalking victims, and uh, I never lost a stalking victim. We didn't solve every case and find out who was the anonymous author, but we did make sure that precautions were taken. NYPD notified, getting people out of town maybe instructing them to purchase a firearm in some cases. Um, and um, and uh, Naomi Wolf was someone else. She came out with her first book back in the day. She's in the news a lot now. Interesting that some of the stuff she had to say about COVID uh, in the last few months. But I met her when she came out with her first book, The Beauty Myth. Uh, from her, I received my first ever signed book by an author. And she lived in a little uh, uh, apartment down in Tribeca, and she had a stalker. And we actually did identify that person. Uh, I think we arrested that person, but they were they were a nut job. It's a technical term, which I know you're aware of, Ray. And uh, and uh, the person just eventually went away. There was no real threats in these stalking letters, but just certainly harassment. Yeah, erotomania. You know what, Jim? And and I know you're we're talking about stalking here, but if you think back to the '80s. Uh, in the late 80s, when you and I came on, they didn't really call it stalking. The term didn't really exist. It was more called, and if, if you remember, it was more more called harassment, threatening, annoyance, even domestic terrorism. But it really didn't come into uh, into play until around 1990 in California when they established the first anti-stalking law. <clears throat> and then after that, other states just followed along with it. You know, but, you know, I looking that we're going to talk at this and I looked just a little bit of data for our listeners. There are approximately 200,000 serial stalkers in America that are operating at any one time. And there's out of that, there's probably 1.4 million victims of stalking, which is really uh, which is really unique when you think about that, because you think, is it is it really that big of a deal? stalking and it is it really is well it is and of course it's measured in degrees there are you know minor levels of stalking moderate major but of course even minor minor stalking can be very problematic to the victim of it and be it a man or a woman yes women can stalk men men can stalk women and everything in between but i think i think it really changed in this country ray when um well it started in 1981 when John Hinckley was stalking Jodie Foster and to kind of impress her in a little way, he thought he'd do it could take a little, you know, action on his part. So he tried to assassinate the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, and he almost succeeded. He, he shot him, seriously injured him, but fortunately President Reagan survived and he went away to prison. This and poor Jodie Foster, I mean, she had nothing to do with this, just this delusional guy trying to make score points with her. But then about five, eight, uh, eight years later, late 80s, an actress by the name of Rebecca Schaefer, uh, I think she was on a show called My Sister Sam or something like that. And she had a stalker and she reported to the police and did everything she could write. This guy just somehow got in her house, her apartment, wherever she was, I think stabbed her to death, uh, you know, raped her and really, really bad. And that's when that's when it really kicked into the next year. California started that law um, and, and the statute. There became a federal federal statute for stalking. The gift of fear came out in which um, it was really a good, a good tome. Um, and it was all about how to, um, in fact, protect yourself from uh, stalkers and not find yourself in different situations in terms of how, uh, how those, uh, how you could be victimized. So uh, things really kicked in in the 80s, but certainly by the 90s, Ray, you're right, that's when the laws were passed and uh, people were really taking, there's, there were TV movies about stalkers and, and all these different kinds of cases. There was there was a lot of publicity out there and uh, and, and, and the, 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 the cultural mindset was certainly starting to pick up on this and the stalkers had to get better and they had to kind of do it in different ways sometimes. And then of course, social media came along certainly the internet in the mid 90s social media a bit later and then that even opened some doors up and some avenues for stalkers in an attempt to harass their victims and uh and it continues to this day you know it's funny we're talking about like rebecca schaefer 
and some of these other people who are celebrities that have either been killed or injured by stalkers, which really generated the movement. But what what people don't understand, those are are rare. And a lot of the majority of stalkers have been in relationships with their victims. And a, a, a larger percentage uh, either never met or were just acquaintances, neighbors, or even friends, uh, which is which is kind of ironic. But when you look at stalking itself, it's antisocial behavior that kind of borders on sociopathy, you know. And when we talk about a lot of the things that we do, the serial offenders, the serial rapists, they engage in stalking. Stalking, if you think about it, is like a long-term rape. It really is. I mean, when you when you think about it in that sense, individuals are good. And you go, well, what type of behaviors? If I threw out to you and I, and I look at some of the behaviors that I've experienced over time when we talk about that, you know, well, watching somebody or following them, right? Okay. Uh, making harassing phone calls, hangups, you know, sending mail. Uh, now it's not really, sometimes it's in the form of a letter. Sometimes it's in form of email where you're talking about cyber stalking. They'll make threats to either the victim themselves or to their family members. Uh, they'll vandalize personal property. I've had a situation where a gang member uh, went after a girl and he firebombed her car. It just didn't want hurt her, but fire, you know, firebombed and firebombed the car. But, you know, just that constantly driving by and then getting un unwanted love notes and gifts and flowers and things of that nature, it, it becomes those behaviors become very new and it happens anywhere. It starts out innocent where they kind of bump into you, where you're, um, where you're, you know, at church or at the mall, uh, or you're at the store or at the gym. And then it kind of just escalates a little bit when you kind of look at that. It always appears innocent. Well, a few things. I mentioned a book, The Gift of Fear. The author is Gavin DeBecker. I'd suggest anyone, if you want to get sort of a good, um, you know, background on how to protect yourself in these type of situations, it's written a few decades ago, but I know it's been updated since then. And, you know, the, and, uh, and Ray, everything you're saying uh, ties into what the psychological community came up with about in the, in the 1990s, and they actually coined a term, and it's now in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, that's where all the psychological conditions and psychiatric conditions are listed, and it's simply called erotomania. And there's a few different levels of it, but that's basically, I'll read the definition. It's a delusional disorder in which an individual believes another person, usually of higher status, is in love with him, despite clear evidence against it. Um, yeah, and it could be, I say him, but it certainly could be a her. And it, many times it is a relationship-based erotomaniac situation, but it certainly could be some sort of a celebrity situation. I've handled a number of those over the years, too. Um, and uh, and they can be tricky, too, because you'll have some news person or some politician um, who's on the air, and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are seeing them, and the suspect pool is really, is, is the entire, you know, United States, if not North America. And uh, and it, it makes it tricky to, uh, to uh, bring those things into play. But interesting, as you know, I'm a criminal profiler, but also a forensic linguist. And my first big case, and I didn't realize at the time, if I knew this, I probably would have been a lot more nervous. But my first big case in terms of expert testimony was in what is now known as uh, District of New Jersey versus Van Wyck, V-A-N-W-Y-K. He was a bad news stalker. He went to prison once for stalking some women, writing nasty things to them, assaulting them, punching them out. He gets out, and he's, he's a you know decent-looking guy. He can talk the talk, whatever, and he starts hooking up with some of these women, but they see through him within a date or two, and then they end it. And the next thing you know, these nasty, mean, uh, highly insulting letters go through the mail. This was all mail back then. And like now we have four or five different women uh, getting these things, all in the uh, the Newark division of the FBI. Our good friend, Tom Catone, was the uh, NCABC coordinator up there, the profiling coordinator. We'll talk about that in maybe another episode, what those folks do. But um, so I know you were one too, Ray. But, um, 
but he got me involved in this case. And this guy was so bad. A, a local detective started investigating this Roy Van Wick. And um, when Roy found out this detective was, you know, coming around his house, asking questions or his neighborhood, he firebombed the detective's car. That's what a badass this guy was. I was tasked with, I did the Unabomb case. I was successful in that, looking at the known writings of Kaczynski, the question writings of the Unabomber. I compared them. We got in the cabin with a search warrant, uh, and the rest is history. A few other cases along the way. Here comes this Van Wick case. Tom Catone, hey, are you interested? Sure. I compared the known writings of, uh, of, of Roy Van Wick to the letters he sent to these women. I compared them uh, and wrote a report and said, yeah, one and the same. Well, for the first time, I was called to testify in court. And uh, the assistant U.S. attorney put me up there, kind of taking a chance. I had a master's like you. I had a, at least one master's at this time, Ray, in psychology, but virtually no training in linguistics or statement analysis. I had two hours from Sue Adams, an FBI agent that we know back in the day, in statement analysis, but that was it. But to the judge's credit, he still allowed me to testify as an expert under Daubert, and we can discuss that perhaps, but it's the federal sort of, uh, procedural aspects of when an ex expert can come into a courtroom and offer testimony. And if you've seen the movie, My Cousin Vinny or uh, Legally Blonde, you don't have to have a number of PhDs to be an expert in a courtroom. Um, I mean, I did have a master's. I worked the Unabom case, so I had legitimate bona fides in that regard. And the judge said, you can come in and testify in this case. There were some restrictions put on my testimony, but essentially I got across to the jury. They convicted Roy Van Wick. Uh, he went away to prison. He filed some appeals. They were all, you know, uh, rejected, and he he did his prison time. So, um, so it's interesting how um, a stalking case really, and and a number of forensic linguists. I don't even really know this community much. I had not even started my Georgetown classes yet, where I eventually got a degree, uh, my second master's in linguistics. But I had not even started there yet. And uh, although I decided on the stand that day, going through a grueling cross-examination by a defense attorney who never really scored any points, but I had to keep saying, no, I don't have any training here. No, I don't have a degree in this. And you know how it is, Ray. They'll, no matter how much you have on the ball or how much you have on your resume, they'll find a, you know some way to go after you. But afterwards, here, I, I really opened the door. And it was the first time ever I was involved in the first ever search warrant in federal courts in a criminal case, in the Unabom case, in which forensic linguistics was used. And now I'm the first one ever in a criminal case in the federal court testifying to what we call authorial attribution analysis. That's comparing the two sets of documents. And I wasn't a linguist. And some linguists I later met, they loved me. Jim, you opened the door for us. That's great. Others I found out were a little bit jealous. Who do you think you are? You're not even a, you're a, just an FBI agent. So we can have another podcast episode about about that some of the uh some of those types of issues that uh you get punished for uh, doing good things sometimes jim i want that was my first case there and it came very interesting i remember um in working with you in our discussions and the times we've been out talking about the case in australia that was a stalking case uh why don't you share with our audience i tell you i think I, i'm fat was fascinated when you told me about it and and there's a couple different ones that we had had the chance to work together on, but I didn't have a chance to work with you on this. And I, but I just think it's fascinating. I think our audience would love to. Hear. Well, I've actually worked several stalking cases out of Australia, but I'll go with the most recent one, which I think is the most interesting. And here in the U.S., we have a show called 60 Minutes. Um, in Australia, there's a show called Australia Story, and in um, 2021, I think. They uh, they did a story on this stalking case of a woman named D. McDonald um, who dated the guy like for five weeks and said, "Now nah, you know this isn't working. You're not uh, you're not working for me. Uh, I'm out of here." And next thing you know, over about the following two years, the subsequent two years, she gets nothing in the mail to her, which is interesting. But there's letters being posted at bars. There's letters being posted at her workplace. Other people are getting letters in the mail in which um, um, in which she is really being highly insulted, denigrated, sexual issues. I mean, everything nasty you can put in there. And the police just could not prove their case 
who was a uh, a detective involved who uh, who was doing her best and you know but we all have to work under probable cause in this country in that country and you can have a really good suspect but she just didn't have the pc as we say to make the arrest so even though i it was so it was victoria police department in australia and even though i worked a case earlier with victoria pd about a stalker it was a woman who worked in a middle school who didn't get promoted and some guy got the principal position and um and all of a sudden these bizarre letters went out but but this detective in the stalking the other stalking case didn't even realize necessarily too much about that it's a big pd she happened to be watching the tv series manhunt unabomber i said wow this forensic linguistic stuff unabomb case solved with language we have all these letters in this case I wonder if this guy Fitzgerald, first of all, is still around, and second of all, is still working cases. Luckily, the answer is yes to both. And um, I get an email one day, hey, you don't know me, this is Detective you know, so-and-so from Victoria PD, and would you uh, be interested? I said, well, I need a little more information, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, sure, uh, I'll work the case for you. And um, and we, I officially got on board, sent me the documents, and... Um, and um, and if you watch, it's on YouTube, um, Australia Story. Look for uh, D. Gardner and Stalker case, something like that. The stalker's name was Max Gardner. And um, not violent, fortunately, but he had issues with other women in the past. I think even an ex-wife. And it was interesting with the detective telling me that some of the ex-girlfriends didn't want to get involved. They would have really helped strengthen the case. So oh, I'm done. I'm afraid of this guy. Anyway, thanks to my linguistic analysis, um, and uh, and I, I called it as it was. The evidence has to be there. You know, there are plenty of cases I've worked. Sorry, folks, you don't have the evidence to make a to make a what we call consistent, uh, you know, evaluation that the writing style is consistent. Then there's levels of uh, distinctiveness to it. I won't bore everyone with that, but uh, but we can make a really solid case. This case, I took it to the very top level, said Max Gardner is your guy, and they went and arrested him based on the forensic linguistic evidence. He denied it, denied it, denied it. I was ready to testify. I was gonna fly there and testify in the case. And then like two nights before uh, the trial, he decided to plead guilty and uh, admit to him doing everything. He went to prison for like a year, and uh, he's out again, and the, the victim is a little concerned he may reoffend, but it's been about a year and a half he's been out and he has not recontacted her. Of course, there's all kinds of um, cease and desist orders and protection from abuse. For a while, he was on an ankle bracelet, but uh, so far, nothing uh, with her. But but yeah, the, um, there's some stalking groups in Australia that really were appreciative of the work that I did. And I really gave it to Dean McDonald and this female detective in the Victoria PD. They really... Uh, they really did a great job sticking with this case, D not giving up. She readily admits in this Australia Story TV interview that she was considering suicide at one point. That's how bad it gets sometimes in these stalking cases. She was, you know, in her 40s, the mother of a couple kids, divorced. And, and, and you know, and, and she's actually considering this. One of her good friends did commit suicide. For a while, they thought this Max Gardner guy may have had something to do with it. It, it looks like that's not the case but or certainly can't be proven so yeah this is my most recent case and if anyone's out there you want to check out the uh australia story it's on youtube it's i think it's in two sections and you'll uh they actually came to my home on the east coast here and interviewed me uh, they were so interested in getting my story out there so uh so now i'm friendly with d we exchange emails we're on facebook with each other very good person she's appreciative of what i did for her case and i'm just an admirer of her for putting up with something. Ray and I, Ray, you and I can work these cases, but unless you've actually been a victim of one of these cases, one of these people, um, it, it's hard to really put yourself in those shoes, but you got to do your best, be objective and stick to these types of investigations and, and get them solved and, and identify the bad guy and put him in jail. For our listeners sake, when you look at these stalk, these stalkers, these offenders of stalking, you can kind of put them into three separate categories. One would be intimate, the other would be delusional, and the third would be vengeful. So when you're looking and you're talking about this intimate, which most of the people that are not celebrities or have high positions like uh, politicians or things of that nature, you know, you're usually uh, breaking up with someone and the guy just can't let it go. 
and you as the victim, you're trying to let them down really easy. But what you're doing is you're actually encouraging that individual because you're agreeing to talk to them just one more time because I want to make sure we break it off nicely. When sometimes, you know, when you're taking a Band-Aid off and it hurts to take it off, sometimes the best way to take it off is just to pull it real quick. The delusional ones really are people that uh, offenders that really don't have a whole lot of contact. They may be the individual that uh, is suffering, well, of course, suffering from some sort of mental illness, uh, mental illness like schizophrenia or manic depression. Uh, and like Jim mentioned, erotomania. Um, you know, <clears throat> they usually come They're from- They're not the, mutually exclusive, by the way. They can all tie in together. Right. Correct. You know, and Jim talked about the stalker who killed Rebecca Schaefer. There was a woman that stalked David Letterman. You know, so when you look at these type of things, these type of delusional stalkers believe that they're destined to be with someone. It may be that they're watching a TV show, a movie or a talk show, and that person is talking about something and they believe that it's intended for themselves. So that's where it comes into it. And Jim also mentioned John Hinckley with Jodie Foster, and he's also an example uh, of a delusional stalker. You know, when you get into that. So you look at you look at this and the last one is the vengeful stalker. And I'm going to talk about something, a case, Jim, it's actually the first case you and I worked. Uh, Arthur Bomar with Amy Willard. Amy Willard was a college student at JMU, which is a university in Virginia. Uh, and uh, she was a lacrosse player. I believe she was a lacrosse player. And her father, I knew her father well. Her father was a sergeant with the Chester Police Department. He has since passed. Um, but uh, we took a special interest in this because it was a daughter of a police officer and it was close to home for me and for you, Jim. And uh, I remember distinctly uh, that uh, for whatever reason, this Arthur Bomar, uh, he was angry with maybe just against women in general, whether I don't know really what it was because he would never really talk to anybody, Jim. But I remember the one time going in with the state police to talk to him uh, in the county prison. And I looked into this guy's eyes and I thought, oh, my God, I'm looking at pure evil. I mean, it was like looking into a black hole when I looked into his eyes. There was nothing. There was no emotion. There was nothing with it. Uh, he uh, he was just something different. Now, I don't know if he was it, but what he did, and we, we talked about most serial offenders are usually uh, stalkers in some way. They stalk their prey, as rapists do, serial rapists, and as do serial killers sometimes. But politicians will also engage, will also engage these type of stalkers that are vengeful. They're going against them for some reason. You know, I was just watching the show, uh, 60 Minutes last night, and they had a story on Ray Epps when in January 6th, uh, he was supposedly one of the leaders. They thought he was an informant for the, for the FBI, and he's now living in a motorhome somewhere out in the mountains, and he travels from place to place because he's afraid because people are threatening him. People are actually stalking him, trying to get to him. So, And they're what we would consider be a vengeful stalker. But Arthur Bomar, what Arthur Bomar did is he would stalk his victims from a location. And many times it was from a bar or for something else where there's a lot of people where he could mix in. The, uh, the victim would leave. And what he did in this case with Amy Willard, he followed her from a bar, Sloppy Joe's in Ardmore, followed her down uh, the Blue Route which is 476, which connects, for those that don't know, connects the Pennsylvania Turnpike with Interstate 95 that runs all the way uh, up north and south up the East Coast from Florida to Maine. And she was pulling off an exit, which was to her home, and he tapped her, her car in the rear. And uh, when he did that, uh, she pulls over to the side of the road thinking it's an accident. And when she gets out, don't know exactly what happened, but she now becomes uh, his prey. And he takes her, leaves her car open, and puts her in her in his car 
and then goes to Philadelphia and they wind up finding her what they call in Philadelphia, it's called a hole in the wall. And what I mean by that is that it's a row of row homes and in the middle of the block, there is a row home that's been demolished because it's been condemned. And they call that a hole in the wall where you have a row home in one area, an empty lot, another row home. And I remember uh, when they found a pattern on her back that was star-shaped and they thought it must have been a tow truck driver or something of that nature because of the back of tow trucks had that same type of, of uh, uh, insignia or same type pattern on top of their tow truck. And I remember, Jim, we were, we were down in Quantico and we were sitting in, a, in an office and uh, I don't remember the forensic pathologist that was there. Maybe you do. But he was sitting there with us, and I'm sitting there with the two troopers and the two detectives from Delaware County CID. I'm sitting there, and we're, we're, it's been cold for almost two years now, the case. They've, they didn't have anything, but they, they had a kind of a contact to him because another girl disappeared, Maria Cubanus. And then another girl, he bumped the back of her car, but she didn't get out, but she was able to get his tag. The problem was, is that it wasn't his car. It was a car of Maria Cubanus. And that's what kind of tied things. And so then when he notices that, he dumps that car. And we're sitting there and the pathologist is looking at the autopsy photographs of Amy Willard. And he says, and we're all sitting there, Jim, and he says, you know, if I didn't know any better, I would say this girl was hit by a car. And the next thing we know, the light bulb goes off. Everybody around the room, we need to find the car that he used to own before Maria Cubanus. And we were able to have the auto theft guys trace it to a place up in Newtown in Bucks County where it was about to be destroyed. And they pulled the car out. They did a search and they found that the oil pan at the bottom of the car was actually had the same pattern as a pattern on Amy Willard's back. And that's what actually helped solve that case. Just a, a nonchalant statement that this forensic pathologist made, and I forget his name, he was an older guy. And I thought, boom, I can't remember his name, but he did some work with the unit down there, Jim. I just, it, you know, I know we're going you back. I'm drawing a blank on We're his going name back too. 25, almost 30 years. You know, we're going back here. But I mean, just what, what an amazing stroke of luck that allowed us to do that and then help us also at that point solve the Maria Cubanus case as well. And Ray, we're coming up on just about an hour here. Maybe it's a good place to wrap it up in that um, there's an irony to this case in that, first of all, Bomar was on parole and he was a parole violator out of Nevada for a homicide uh, about 11 or 12 years before. Somehow he comes out, he comes east to the Philadelphia suburbs area, and he's picking up right where he left off. It was a parking lot incident in Nevada. Now he's stalking women at different bars, whatever. But it's his first kill, that of which we are aware, there may have been others, but the first one we know of is Amy Willard, who happened to be the daughter of a Chester City police officer, police sergeant. And about a year and a half later, it happened to be the daughter of a Philadelphia police officer who got tapped in the rear of her car at an off-ramp of like near uh, Cotman Avenue in the boulevard or something. And she knew enough from her father not to get out of the car, drive to a police station or a well-lit area. And if it really was an accident, the guy's gonna follow and get out and they'll talk and exchange information then. The guy never followed, but she was smart enough Number one, not to get out of the car. Number two, to drive away. Number three, she memorized the tag as somehow it passed. And you're right, it, it didn't belong to the car. It was the car of another missing woman who was eventually found dead about a year later up in Doylestown somewhere. And uh, But the whole case came together with that enterprising young woman. So we've been leaving sort of tips to prevent being victimized 
uh, on our on our episodes near the end. I would say in this case, you're ever hit in the rear by someone, and and you're at all, um, you know, it's unusual. You're uncomfortable. Those little hairs on the back of your necks are standing up. Don't get out of the car. Drive to a well-lit place, uh, a police station, or call. Everyone has cell phones now. You know, call police to meet you at the intersection. Don't get out of the car with the person who may have hit you, because it could just be someone mimicking what Arthur Bomar did 25 years ago. I'm going to throw this out to you. And let's just say it's someone that uh, you know, and uh, you're trying to break it, break off something, and the person just won't let go. And they begin to do different things, stalking you, sending you things, calling you, phone hangups. Document every incident. Okay? Make sure you're telling other people. Don't keep the information to yourself. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your parents, your brothers. Whatever you do, don't antagonize a stalker. Don't look to do things. If you can, obtain a protection order. All right? Sometimes it's... The level there you might need, but whatever you do, never agree to meet the stalker and never have any further contact with the stalker. Because in a in a lot of in a lot of situations, there's really zero protection in a lot of these stalking cases. They need to, most states require something documented or something a a threat that is recorded where they're saying that they're going to harm you repeatedly over a period of time, which doesn't bode well for the victim because by the time it happens, it's too late for you. So my my point is don't go through this alone. Okay. Inform other people, get together with other people and do what you can uh, to protect yourself in any way you can do that. And we're talking about stalking. Always have your phone with you, always ready to push that button, uh, 911. There's armbands you can get now. We can call I don't know if they're what the brand is, but you can call police, whatever. You can record someone right away. That's the worst enemy of stalkers. They don't want to be recorded because they know how bizarre they come across and, quite frankly, what laws they'd be violating at the same time. So use technology to your favor, but don't become a victim of it in terms of allowing this person to own or control you. Document and save everything that anyone would save to you, send to you in a certain file. That way, when it's time to go to police, you have it all set up and ready to go. At this point, uh, we like to thank everybody that's uh, that's listening to us tonight. Um, we had a great time. We hope that you come back and uh, and see us again and listen to us again. Uh, you never know what we're going to talk about. Uh, we don't know what we're going to talk about. It all depends. It may be something that's current that's going on, or it may be one of the old cases that we work. So we'll keep surprising you every time you come around. So uh, on behalf of Fitz and Jim, uh, Fitz and Jim. How about that one? How about Fitz and Ray? Are you seeing two of me, Ray? I, you know what? After Jim, I'm seeing two of you. I haven't been on here this long. I am starting to see two of you. That's not healthy for All me. Right. Well, you know look I mean? right in the middle. That's where you'll find me. But yeah, <laughs> everybody the guy in the middle, right? Yeah. And everybody leave comments below. Uh, if you want to be negative, that's on you, but either positive or give us some ideas of things to talk about. But we have plenty of cases to discuss. We're going to be bringing guests in eventually. We're, we have a few people lined up just trying to work out the logistics of that. We may do some in-studio work before long, uh, even on the road, maybe even do something live. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later. But, yeah, Ray, great talking to you tonight. And, everyone, see you in Cold Red um, next episode. Signing off.